Hello and welcome to the Sierra Youth Podcast, a podcast where we hold conversations about creating a healthy planet for healthy communities. We're here to learn about all things related to intersectional environmental justice from the perspective of youth. Our hosts are Jackie, Michaela, Emily, Jessica, and me, Brenna. We have the immense pleasure of welcoming Elizabeth May to the podcast. You probably know Elizabeth as being a Canadian politician who served as leader of the Green Party of Canada from 2006 to 2019. She's also a member of parliament for Saanich Gulf Islands and has been since 2011. Elizabeth was the first Green Party member to win a seat in the House of Commons. She also founded and served as the executive director of our very own Sierra Club Canada from 1989 to 2006 and has written a number of books, including How to Save the World in Your Spare Time, Losing Confidence, Power, Politics, and the Crisis in Canadian Democracy, and Who We Are, Reflections on My Life in Canada. As you know, we're the youth branch of the Sierra Club Canada, and so we are so excited to have this conversation with Elizabeth May today. So Elizabeth, I would love to just start off and ask um, if you could tell us a little bit more about your background and how you got into politics. Well, I really got into politics by accident, you really have to say, because I'd done environmental work my whole life, basically. I um, I'm, I can mark, you know, a specific date. You know, sometimes you look back at your life when you're as 68 as I will be in a couple of weeks. And you, there's not always a date for when something started in your life. But uh, my work uh, as an environmental activist began a few months ahead of this, but I know for sure that when I was in grade 10, I organized for the first Earth Day, which was April 22nd of 1970. So uh, I've been, I've been drawn to environmental work from, for a very long time. I did, uh, no matter what I was doing in terms of how I made a living, I was always working in the environmental movement, mostly as a volunteer. So, and you mentioned, of course, in the intro that, um, well, what happened was I'd, I'd actually worked in government. I'd been senior policy advisor to the Federal Minister of Environment, was a, a, a position for, the, for those of you, you know, in the youth coalition, obviously, um, sometimes people ask me about my career and they think you apply for things, apply for jobs. I've hardly ever applied for a job. In the case of the Minister of Environment back in the 80s, he decided he needed someone in his office who was actually knowledgeable about the environment. You might think that was an obvious thing, but it's it was unusual because usually ministers' offices were people who were worried about the politics and they were working on their own party's goals, not the environment's goals. So after working in the Minister of Environment's office for two years and then quitting on principle when he broke the law, I'd gotten some news coverage around quitting on principle that meant the, the volunteers who were running Sierra Club came to me and said, we'd like you to come work with us, but we only have, we, we want to offer you $10,000 a year for your contract, but we haven't raised the money yet. So that's how I went from working in government, which I hadn't planned, to opening up a Sierra Club of Canada office in Ottawa and organizing for Sierra Club of Canada. Because way back then, 1989, Sierra Club had chapters in British Columbia and in Ontario and members across the country. But all the information about the organization came from San Francisco. We didn't have a separate Canadian Sierra Club. So all of that to say that my life's work was in the environmental movement until Stephen Harper became prime minister. So when I say I went to politics by accident, uh, I regard the, the 2006 election as a very unhappy accident for Canada, 
we had, uh, I won't go back into it because it, it, I'm sure it feels like ancient history to all of you, what happened in 2005, uh, that we lost a, a quite environmentally friendly minority government under Paul Martin and went rapidly from, well, as another Sierra Club um, buddy uh, who, who went on to become executive director after I left, John Bennett said, you know, we just went, Canada just went from hero to zero. And it was overnight when Harper came in. So I recognized that I could not do the work I'd been doing at Sierra Club as an activist and as a spokesperson and as an organizer in the in the political climate that was about to hit us with Stephen Harper. I knew that if I was going to take on Stephen Harper, I had to do it from a different vantage point. And at the same time that I was coping with what, how much damage could Stephen Harper do to this country and our environmental laws, I was one of the few people who actually thought he could do permanent damage, and he did. Uh, but at the same time that that was happening, uh, friends of mine were saying, look, we, we, we would like you to join the Green Party. We, we, we have a leadership race and we'd like you to be the next leader of the Green Party. So I actually had to quit my job as executive director of Sierra Club in order to join the Green Party in order to run for leader. So my, my being in politics was all about finding the right vantage point to protect the environment, recognizing that NGOs were about to get into a very rough ride. I mean, I absolutely saw that Stephen Harper was going to go after charitable status, that Stephen Harper would demonize environmental groups and shut people down. And it, it's it's an ongoing struggle, even with the change in government. So all of that is to say that I, I didn't mean to get into politics, but I did. And I'm, I got elected in 2011, as you mentioned in the intro, the first elected Green. I don't know that I ever would have occurred to me that I'd be a member of parliament in 2022 with no intention of, of leaving the work that I do in parliament. Thank you so much for giving that background on your background and how you got into politics. Don't worry about the long story. We are here for it. I love, I love um, learning about that for you. And I really love that you touched on when you worked as a senior policy advisor to Tom McMillan, um, because I noticed on your Twitter, you know, you call yourself an activist, an author, and also a mom and many other things. And that leads me into different avenues of change making. So you resigned in protest um, when you were working for Tom McMillan who was the environment minister under the progressive conservative prime minister Brian Mulroney because a new dam project was exempted from an environmental assessment. Um, And then when you were also serving as executive director of the Sierra Club Canada, you staged a 17-day hunger strike to draw attention to the Sydney Tar Ponds, um, which was an industrial waste site responsible for illnesses and birth defects in the former city of Sydney and the surrounding area. Um, In 2013, you also launched a tour titled Save Democracy from politics. And so when I say all these things, and there's so much more, it's so clear that throughout your life and career, you've been involved in many different avenues of change making from activism to organizing to politics. And so I was just curious on a larger scale, if you could talk more about the different avenues of change making and and how they're different. Yeah, well, in, of course, first, you have to position yourself, where are you? I mean, a lot of my colleagues in global movements, you know, just protect nature, just a lot of people who like me in other countries, are killed. So you have to say, okay, what tools work? Where, for number one, we have a huge advantage over colleagues in Mexico or Ecuador or Brazil or um, India. I mean, the, the, the number of people who've been killed 
fighting against shrimp aquaculture. People don't realize that, 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 that trying to stop the destruction of mangrove forests to plunk down ponds for, um, for growing shrimp, it's one of the worst things you can do. But, but, but the fact that people get killed trying to protect uh, ecosystems is something that in Canada, uh, we're blessed that we have, number one, we're in a democracy and in, uh, activists are generally pretty safe. So the, the range of things we have to do, uh, we really have a lot of freedom and we have a lot more security than environmental activists in other countries. So it everything on the spectrum from something as simple as writing letters to the editor, which is something, again, with the, with the advent of social media, sometimes it's posting comments on social media, but an actual crafted letter to the editor that actually gets printed in mainstream press is actually a very useful activist tool. Uh, I guess you'd have to start the even easier than that is signing a petition. Huh? Signing a petition is an easy thing for anyone to do. Um, by the way, petitions go back you know, historically. The first effective use of petitions for social change was Lord Wilberforce fighting to abolish slavery in the British Empire. He used petitions in Parliament as a way of getting people who were uh, unaware of the issues around slavery, can you imagine, uh, to engage. So the easiest step for the average person to take is to sign a petition. Dead easy. Sign a postcard that's pre-printed and drop it in the mail, all that. The harder things to do are when you, you have to leave your comfort zone a lot. And that anything where you're getting arrested or participating in any kind of physical uh, activity like Extinction Rebellion. Um, I was arrested in 2018 on a pipeline, uh, protest in the Kinder Morgan pipeline. I can't believe that in Parliament yesterday, we're still dealing with um, liberal ministers saying, well, it's a responsible project and we need to do it. I mean, it just makes you crazy. It makes me feel crazy. But anyway, so the nonviolent civil disobedience is a useful tool in democracy and has to be done with the proper training and respect for what you're, what you're doing. But in between and way easier and also very effective are all these easier things like letters to the editor, going in to meet with MPs, um, demonstrations in front of an MP's office. Those are useful things. Uh, actually engaging and digging into the science and writing your own opinion pieces to newspapers, conventional newspapers and online. Um, all of those things are extremely useful and more. So there's, uh, the, the, the only thing that's really, I suppose, unhelpful is uh, things that are divisive and spread um, uh, increase what we have in the society, which really worries me. And it's relatively new disinformation sites that actually make people believe things that aren't true and create hatreds. We have to avoid allowing any hatreds to be formed. And we have to make sure that as we move forward on protecting nature and ensuring we have a livable world, which means really rapid action to go off fossil fuels, uh, we, we, we need to be caring and conscious of bringing everyone along with us and also making sure that we recognize that climate justice and social justice have to be integral to the work we do on every aspect of uh, 
the most urgent of the threats right now, which is, of course, the climate emergency. But we also have, you know, running right alongside of it, water crisis, biodiversity crisis, all the aspects of declaring war on nature. I think that's really great that you touched on all those things. And, you know, as you know, we are a youth led podcast. And so I think specifically in terms of youth, there's often a lot of confusion in terms of where do I even start? I have all these feelings. I'm super passionate and I just don't even know what's accessible. And so I'm just curious what you can say to young people for those that are not sure what the best pathway is for them. You know, one of the things that I want to say to young people as often as possible, and I hope you'll say to people my age, is it's not your problem. We have an obligation, an absolute moral obligation to meet the IPCC advice by 2025 and by 2030, which means by 2025, at the latest, emissions from, of greenhouse gases and productions of fossil fuels must hit their highest ever point and drop. So peaking no later than by 2025 is essential if we're going to stay below two degrees. Uh, and uh, my goal, of course, is still to try to hang on to 1.5, which is um, increasingly difficult to see how we're going to do that. But but we have to try. Certainly, um, meeting the IPCC advice of peaking no later than 2025 and dropping in half by 2030, that can't be something where people my age uh, say to youth. Well, good luck on that. You know, I'm sure you'll do a better job than we did. I hate hearing people say that as if it's really going to fall on your generation. It's too late to leave it. We can't leave it to you. We are the ones that are responsible and don't let anyone in my generation off the hook. We, I think if we can mobilize, and I've been thinking about it a lot lately because I'm trying to figure out what do we do between now and 2025. The April 4th report of the IPCC is a real wake-up call because, I mean, I've been working on the basis that we have to reduce emissions in Canada by 60% below 2005 levels by 2030. The government is at this point saying they're going to hit 40% below 2005 by 2030. Clearly inadequate. I'm wondering, you know, mobilizing, um, you know, grandparents to say, you know, take this commitment on. I will not die until I fixed this. I do not leave this to my grandchildren. Um, not, not quite sure how we vocalize that and verbalize that, but coming from youth is a powerful thing. Make the commitment. Um, those of you born <laughs> after, um, those of you born before 1990, let's just make that the cutoff. My daughter was born in 1991, so it's an easy date for me to remember. But you know, Greta Thunberg has it right. Um, my generation is stealing your future and we should be dealt with harshly and immediately to wake us up to do the work that needs to be done so it doesn't fall on you. I'm so uh, refreshed and I'm so glad that you said that because yes, the line we definitely hear from older folks for sure in positions of power is like, and that's why we just love your movement as youth because you're so inspiring and you give us hope and like, you're going to fix this because we obviously didn't do a good job and it just drives you crazy. Um, Me and too. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> 
And also I was in, I was in Victoria last week. Um, I work for the Canadian Parks and Wilderness Society, the BC chapter. And so we were lobbying with government officials to support Indigenous led conservation in the province. And some of the uh, ministers and MLAs were saying, you know, like, you should be sending me all the research because, you know, you need to help me do my job. And, and like, I'm relying on you to like feed this information. And I can kind of see it. But at the same time, I'm thinking, you know, really, is that our total responsibility? And I think that that leads me into asking you, like when talking about politics, you know, how important is it for you to be more involved and to have more access and power in Canadian politics? Okay, so this is an analysis you might not have heard because it may just be that I'm the only one who sees this. When I talk about the damage Stephen Harper did, one of the things he did was destroy Environment Canada. So Environment Canada and climate change no longer has cutting edge scientists working on climate. I don't know how much of Canada's betrayal, and it is a betrayal over and over and over again, and of climate science. You know, I mentioned getting arrested on the Kinder Morgan pipeline in 2018. If anyone had told me that like a year later, my government would, would actually buy the pipeline, months later, buy the pipeline to avoid making Kinder Morgan mad at us. I mean, it, this, is, uh, this is beyond... Um, Beyond, I mean, I wouldn't even have thought it was possible as a, you know, hypothetical, crazy idea that from somebody writing um, a fictitious chronicling of how badly can Canada mess this up. I wouldn't have believed it was possible. So when when you're dealing with with those kinds of issues, uh, you can't be thinking for a minute that it that um, that it's the job of environmental groups to go out and put the research in front of ministers. If the departments hadn't been wrecked by Harper back to that point, the science, the, the minister of environment would be, should be better informed than the people coming to lobby him or her. Like, so in the current context, net zero by 2050 needs to be called out as a, a shameless scam. It's a lie. It's not a target. It's it's nails in the coffin of our biosphere to say tw- net zero by 2050 is a target. How many environmental groups have bought into that? Far too many. I'm absolutely convinced that net zero by 2050 was the invention of civil servants in Environment Canada and climate change who have been uh, completely co-opted by the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers because the the whole department was overhauled under Harper. The good climate scientists left. The climate science work across Canada, the funding stopped under Harper and the last few checks that were still being given out ended under the liberals in government because they said, well, you know, the climate science is something we don't need to fund out of the government of Canada. Are you kidding me? So we have a very, um, and, and I, I, I don't imagine the BC government is any better, but I know, I know the federal scene better. Cause I, as I said, I used to work at Environment Canada. When I worked at Environment Canada, we had leading scientists on water policy, leading scientists on climate. And they did not tell the minister, this is the best way you can pretend to look like you're doing something so that the media and the Canadian Association of Petroleum Producers and the Alberta government will think you're actually on board. I mean, this is... um, Anyway, it's very hard because when you talk about an analysis that says that the entire government of Canada, every department 
is full of captive regulators. So if you look at Health Canada, you find people who are more worried about protecting the, the pharmaceutical industry than protecting Canadian health. If you look at uh, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, you find people more worried about how to protect Norwegian fish farm companies than protect wild salmon. When you look at Environment Canada, which one would think would be a department that wanted to have success in protecting the environment, you still have people who are who are whispering the minister's ears, throwing up roadblocks. And here's the shocker. We just had a decision from the Alberta Court of Appeal that said that Bill C-69 isn't constitutional, the, the uh, in, impact assessment bill, that almost every environmental group in the country cheered for bringing it in. I was practically the only one saying, this bill is awful. Don't vote for this bill because, and I also said, it's, it's not going to be constitutional. It'll be struck down. And it is exactly what Stephen Harper did to environmental assessment in 2012, was protected and perpetuated by the civil service. And Catherine McKenna and her team got co-opted by this. And they had a very, you know, Catherine McKenna's chief of staff, who used to be with Pembina, Marlo Reynolds, got all the environmental groups on board to cheer for Bill C-69, which Jason Kenney called the Anti-Pipeline Act, which I called the Pro-Pipeline Act because it didn't matter. It was, it, was, it was a piece of legislation which was unmoored from uh, solid constitutional reasoning, and it meant that we had the worst of all worlds under this impact assessment law of 2012. I mean, rather the, the 2016 or 19 version that we got from the liberals. It means that the federal government has no responsibility to do environmental assessment when the federal government's own projects screw up the environment because it was created without clear criteria to govern where environmental assessment goes. And it's entirely up to a minister to, with, with total discretion to say, well, this is on the project list, but this isn't. So back to, I mean, as I said, captive regulators, bad decisions, uh, and unfortunately, a lot of that has sucked up the energy of environmental groups as well. So the, the more that we can be and youth in working on these issues, be brutally honest, just keep being honest and speaking truth to power. You, we need youth in power. We also need to mobilize the citizenry of this country to recognize that most of what you're being told by government and media on climate is just misinformation. And you've got to rely on IPCC science and Greta Thunberg, find the honest voices and amplify them. So yeah, with lobbying then, do you think more people need to be like engaged in lobbying? I think for you, you have a really good perspective of like, that's not like the only thing, but do you think more youth and like more citizens should be like understanding what lobbying is and actually meeting with their ministers, their MLAs? Yes, absolutely. But I also think, I mean, it's it's really old school, but it's how we originally organized on climate in Sierra Club. It's just look for opportunities to have some skilled communicators uh, go out and meet with local community groups explain and meet. And so like rotary clubs, like church groups, like chambers of commerce, as well as Friday for the Future groups and 350.org and lead nows, 
expand what we think our job is, recognizing that the breakdown in communications is between citizens and the truth. The, the, the mediated information that citizens get on the climate crisis goes through multiple lenses. And if we're able to say um, we can mobilize through the Sierra Youth Coalition um, a, a skilled group of, you know, five per province minimum, think of it that way, or uh, in, you know, wherever we have youth coalition effort, say, okay, let's get together a, a set of talking points, uh, a really good informative slideshow that we can take out and answer questions and meet with people, get them to go talk to their MP, get them to go talk to their MLA. Um, but right now, the, 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 the public opinion polls are not registering that climate is a worry for people. Now, that's terrifying. We get told by the IPCC that we have um, three, you know, no later than by 2025, emissions must peak and drop. So you wouldn't figure, okay, well, 2025 is sort of three years from now, but it's kind of not three years from now because we've pretty much used up six months of the first year. So start expressing it in days. The other day I calculated it at 974 days. I think that, so we're probably now down to 960 days before we have to ensure that global emissions have peaked and start dropping rapidly. Now, is that doable? You bet it is, but not if we buy into this lie that net zero by 2050 is a reasonable goal. It's it's actually dangerous. Nobody's calling that out the way we really need to. Well, Stand Earth does to a bit. Um, and and I really love working. I'm really happy the city of Victoria passed the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty vote. We need to actually name what we're doing, which is getting rid of fossil fuels. And we, we didn't do that when we started negotiating for the Rio Earth Summit for the Climate Convention. I mean, it's been pointed out a lot lately that the climate the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change and then the Kyoto Protocol and then the bogus Copenhagen Agreement and then the Paris Agreement, none of them mention fossil fuels. We talk about reducing emissions of greenhouse gases. Where do those come from? Well, some is deforestation, of course, but the, the, the crisis that threatens the survival of human civilization is based on oil, coal, and gas, and we should stop using them uh, for burning, if if you want to use them for something else, uh, like you know maybe making plastics that we also want to get rid of as single use plastics, but but, but we need to name them and know we're getting rid of them, and be brutally honest about that on a timeline. So can we do that? Can we say by 2025 the world's use of these substances is going to peak and start dropping? Of course we can, but it's it's. If we don't, if we don't tell people that's what's required, we can't be surprised when um, the liberals announce that they're going to approve Beta Nor for another billion barrels of oil and say that's okay. And every and the, the new deal between the liberals and the NDP mean that every single new Democrat just voted for the Kinder Morgan pipeline, Trans Mountain pipeline is in the budget that they just voted for. So we need to be really brutal with everybody, including. You know, including with the NDP and how could you go along with this deal? One of my friends said, yeah, it's going to be great. We're going to have dental care. So our, our children are going to face an unlivable world with much better teeth. 
I mean, I'm in favor of getting dental care in our public health care system. It was it was a Green Party idea in the first place in our 2015 platform. But I, I'm not satisfied that it's a good deal for the world that the next election in Canada is 2025. What do we do between now and then? to turn this around because that's what we have to do. Important to emphasize that you are like the first member of the Green Party to be elected as a member of parliament and you defeated um, Conservative Cabinet Minister Gary Lunn with a 46% vote in the Saanich uh, Gulf Islands riding. And so more so in terms of like, you know, like how you connect with your community, what were you doing in that time to gain the support and trust of the people? Well, that's a really interesting question, Bruno. I was, what's really interesting is when I, announced I was running in Saanich Gulf Islands. I mean, one of my best friends from Sierra Club days, and I don't think she'll mind me telling that story, but Vicky Husband and I are very close. We're like sisters. And and Vicky's a real champion for old growth and grizzlies. And and we're about the same, you know, we're, we're both older ladies, shall we say. But she was so mad at me. She said, you're only going to split the vote. You're only going to split the vote. Gary Lund will get in again. You're going to split the vote. You know, this because we have this terrible voting system. First past the post is the most perverse because it means that the, the makeup of your parliament at the end of an election doesn't match the 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 voter preferences that were just expressed. Because as soon as as soon as one member of parliament the one candidate gets more votes than the others in that riding, none of the other votes count. So I won't rant on about first past the post, but if we could get rid of first past the post, we'd have a, we'd have a much healthier democracy. So this, you're only going to split the vote thing was my biggest problem because so many people said, we know, why would you, why would you do such a Gary Lund will get in again. It'll be your fault. The thing that made the difference was not just what I did in my community, but the people began and it was, it's really hard to know how it happens because it's amorphous. It's it's out across, you know, a lot of people's individual decision making. But one thing about first past the post is it's easy to give up on the idea that your vote's going to make any difference. So when you know and you begin to think, Gary Lund had been in office for 14 years when I de- when when Greens defeated him and voters defeated him. Now one of the, the the things that changed weren't that a lot few a lot of people who used to vote for Gary Lund suddenly voted for me. No, that's not what happened. <laughs> Gary Lund got almost the same number of votes he'd always gotten, but voter turnout went way up. So we had the highest voter turnout in Canada in the 2011 election. We had 75 percent of the people in Saanich Gulf Islands voted. And I can remember it was one one lovely young woman I was talking to on the campus at UVic trying to convince her to vote for me. My big challenge was to convince her to vote because she said, oh, you know, and she was she started crying. She said, you know, in 2008, I really believed that Bryony Pan was going to win because she was a liberal and she's an environmentalist. And when she lost, I gave up. So if you give up, I had to convince her. She said, please don't make me believe you could win if you can't, because it'll just crush me. She was really crying and struggling with this idea. And I said, I promise you, I actually can win. I really think I'm going to win. But everybody who thinks that would be a good idea needs to vote. So that's one of the most perverse things about First Past the Post is it suppresses voter turnout because people feel so discouraged this ride, if, when once people get it in their head, this riding always goes fill in the blanks. I mean, depending on where you're on cap, this riding always goes liberal. This riding always goes conservatives. This riding always goes new different. There's no chance that we can make a change. Once you believe that you can actually get 
if you get enough people out to vote, all, all bets are off because the biggest voting block, I mean, talked about going into politics because of Stephen Harper, the largest voting block in 2006, when Stephen Harper became prime minister, was the people who didn't vote. In 2011, when Stephen Harper won a majority government, the largest voting block was the, the people who didn't vote. So the I stayed home party could have formed government, except that we don't, it doesn't work that way. So the thing that I did more than anything else was instill in a lot of people with support from many, 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 many volunteers, the idea that this is a doable thing. Uh, I can get elected here. We can have the first green breakthrough here. Saanich Gulf Islands can make history. And then we, since then, there's been 17 or 18 greens, 18 greens across the country elected, either provincially or federally. But I mean, right up until voting day on May 2nd, 2011, I had reporters saying things like, oh, one, one, and he was a distinguished journalist who said, you know, with all due respect, you couldn't get elected dog catcher. And this was right before I won, like three days before I won. I was like, uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, and election night, I had one reporter say to me, well, you tried to run in Nova Scotia. You tried to run in Ontario. When you lose here, where are you going to run next, Mars? And I was pretty sure at that point I was winning. So I said, uh-huh. Well, I think, you know. You know, and it wasn't like I moved across the country running different places. I ran in a by-election in Ontario. People run in by-elections when you're a newly elected leader. But there's a tremendous amount of um, abuse towards Greens, for sure. And our biggest problem is the voting system. And all I had to do was try really hard to help people believe in themselves and believe that in a democracy, voters actually make a difference. Um, also just super quick and so funny. So I work with uh, David Report and Louisa Mafia on Salt Spring because I have a family, like I grew up um, on Salt Spring. So I've never met Brian E. Penn. Yeah, and I used to know them when they lived in, uh, they lived in Ottawa for yeah, a long time yeah. too, right? So they just They're moved. there and yeah. Um, yeah, they mentioned Brian e and Lady Godiva all the time. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, Brian's awesome. And she'd been, oh, she'd been a green and I tried to talk to her. So don't join the liberals. Because at that point, this is also interesting podcast stuff because I never said this publicly before. But at that point where the green, uh, Stéphane Dion had decided when I announced I was running where I lived in Nova Scotia in the riding of a conservative cabinet member named Peter McKay, Stéphane Dion said, I don't want to run anyone against you because maybe you can beat Peter McKay. And I said, you do that because there's this old tradition called leader's courtesy. And right when Bryony was Said, I called Brian to say, are you going to run in Sagical Files? Because this leader of the party is lining up people everywhere. And she said, I don't know. I'm thinking I might run. I mean, uh, David Orchard's called me and I really, I could run with Stefan Dion because he's really great. And I said, well, just hold off because there's Stefan Dion and I were actually having a conversation saying, well, maybe we could make sure that in Saanich Gulf Islands, there's no green running against Bryony Penn, or maybe there's no liberal running against Bryony Penn. Maybe we can, and maybe we could protect David Orchard where he is. Maybe we could have a bunch more. And, and because we couldn't share all that, I just said, hold off, give me a week. And then she announced she was running with the liberals and the, the bad, you know, you can imagine how pe people get, even greens can be quite um, team oriented and angry at another party. And that, that was kind of the kibosh. I, we were lucky that federal council approved the idea that we would accept 
Stéphane Dion's offer as liberal leader to not run against me in Central Nova and we wouldn't run against him. Not that it would matter in Quebec in Stéphane Dion's riding. That's an ultimate safe riding for Stéphane Dion. But he was brave and thinking outside the box around these political allegiances. And I wanted to do it too. And it was, you know, in terms of the hindsight for the whole thing, which is so tragic, is that it didn't help Stefan Dion and it should have, because it showed he put climate ahead of partisanship. And that was a pretty inspiring message. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Wow. And I love that you mentioned hindsight because that makes me think, you know, yes, we know hindsight is 2020. And so in terms of your professional and your personal journey in environmental politics, Is there anything you wish you had known or is there anything you would have done differently? I know it's like a long span of time. It is. I mean, I've been working on climate since I was in the minister's office in 86. I don't know what I would have done differently except to know that we were making that. I mean, the mistakes that happened kept happening. The failures kept happening incrementally. And you think, okay, it's like two steps forward, one step back or two steps backward, one step forward. The biggest mistake that happened on the climate issue was failing to recognize two things that we did to save the ozone layer and didn't do on climate. And I worked on the ozone layer. I worked on the Montreal Protocol Agreement. I was in the negotiations. On the Montreal Protocol to save the ozone layer, which and, and basically the, the Kyoto Protocol was based on the architecture of the Montreal Protocol in in many key ways, like the concept of of which climate campaigners listening to this will know the concept in in the climate agreements of common but differentiated responsibilities, which is kind of, which speaks to equity and the fact that the the poorest countries on earth that get hit hugely by the climate crisis need to take on a different target than the richest and most polluting countries. So in the Montreal Protocol context, to save the ozone layer, we said, okay, in the first instance, the wealthy countries will cut their use of chlorofluorocarbons and other ozone-depleting substances in half, and the developing countries can increase by 15% because the developing countries are saying, we still have food rotting. We're not worried about the ozone layer as much as we need these chemicals for refrigeration. So so common but differentiated responsibilities meant everybody was on board to save the ozone layer, but the the responsibilities for making a difference were different. So the wealthy industrialized countries go first, they have more resources, they can develop alternatives and then share them. That's a Montreal Protocol ozone principle that went right into Kyoto. What didn't transfer from Montreal to Kyoto from ozone to climate change was one, Montreal Protocol named the problem and said, we're getting rid of it. We're getting rid of ozone-depleting chemicals, starting with chlorofluorocarbons, moving on to others, right? So Kyoto, neither the 1992 Framework Convention on Climate Change at Rio, nor the 1997 Kyoto Protocol named, we have to get rid of fossil fuels. The other big difference happened right at the midpoint between 1987 and Montreal Protocol and 1997 and Kyoto Protocol was the creation of the World Trade Organization. And that was a a bigger impact than most climate actors would know because the Montreal Protocol in 87 had effective sanctions, effective 
penalties for a country that signed on and then failed to deliver. So the Montreal Protocol said, if any country signs on to this convention and then starts using chlorofluorocarbons, manufacturing ozone-depleting substances in contravention of this treaty, all the other parties to the treaty, all the other countries, which was everybody, can bring trade sanctions against the offending party. By the time we got to Kyoto, the World Trade Organization had gotten all the trade ministers at all the cabinet tables all around the world to say, you can't do that. So we've never had any penalties in any of the climate agreements. So we were both, um, I mean, kind of suckered and co-opted at every stage. I don't know what I would have done if in 1992 I had known that by 2022 we'd be on the edge of too late and that between 1992 and 2022, we would have burned more fossil fuels than we had done between the beginning of the Industrial Revolution and 1992 when we pledged to, to save the climate. So what I would have done if I'd known, I guess part of it, I'm, uh, it's, it's a really hard question, Brenda, because if I'd had that information, what would I have done? I don't know. I, I might have been less nice. I don't know. I don't know that. I mean, I, I I haven't taken a lot of breaks or gone on vacation. So it's not like I thought the problem was solved. So I just I, I can't say that I would have worked harder. I don't know how I could have worked harder, but I am a big fat failure. I, I, I declare fully that we have not done what we needed to do. And again, back to the generational point, you know, youth should absolutely call us out as a generation that was too busy to, to, to do what needed to be done. I mean, a full-on mobilization of society is required. And, and we, as I said, thank God we still have some time, but we don't have a lot of time, which is why I say we can't leave it for your generation because uh, that will be too little too late, or even if it's a magnificent amount of too much, it'll be too late. So we've got to do it now before handing it off to you. I learned a little bit about what you were speaking about in terms of the protocols in school and how they fell short. And I think, yeah, they didn't have like the Kyoto Protocol. They didn't have any um, like reprimands for not meeting the targets. And also it wasn't as customized between like developed nations and developing nations. And then also sometimes the onus or the focus was too much on just emissions and this idea of ecosystem health and just the vitality of biodiversity was not really incorporated in like in regards to like how healthy is our land and water actually though were you going to say something no, no i was just going to say that at the rio earth summit the big that we we had two treaties ex adopted so we felt like we were on top of it but they weren't integrated so we had the convention for the protection of biological diversity and we had the framework convention on climate change and we adopted both at and every country on earth and at that point it was the biggest gathering of of the leaders of countries ever i mean we had on the same platform uh, Fidel Castro and George Bush. I mean, it wasn't the sort of thing that happened every, it was the, it was the biggest gathering. And both of those treaties were adopted as well as what now the, the, um, the disinformation websites of, uh, anti-climate, anti, -climate, anti planet conspiracy theories have demonized Agenda 21, but that was also adopted at Rio to bring in the equity piece, which is the, the what was then called the Rio bargain was the wealthy industrialized countries would um, transfer 
resources, technology, assistance of all kinds to the developing world to end poverty. So if you look up Agenda 21 these days on the websites of the conspiracy disinformation sites, the same ones that now are, I mean, I'm not a fan of the World Economic Forum at Davos, who the hell cares? But it's, I'm getting more emails from people all the time who think the World Economic Forum is running the world. It's like, it's like, okay, so there's a couple places I'm never going to go, including a lot of kind of elite country club golf courses. Doesn't mean they're running the world. They're just elite places like Davos. I don't go there. I don't care. They're not running the world. But to demonize Agenda 21, as if it was an evil conspiracy of globalists to demonize. I mean, the World Economic Forum suddenly woke up and discovered climate was a thing. I mean, Stephen Harper went to Davos every single year. The 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 right wing Davos also sponsors a lot of like climate talk conferences now. You know, like youth are like, "Ooh, the Davos dialogue," and I'm like, "What is that?" <laughs> well, you see, what's happened is that ever since Davos discovered climate and said after COVID. They, they came up with this term, the Great Reset, right? Which was kind of like what everybody else was saying is, we're not, you know, we don't want to go back to normal. We want to build back better. All that kind of language that came out of pandemic has, and, and the fact, fact that we absolutely have to go off fossil fuels has led even the World Economic Forum to say we should. And now we've got whoa, have we ever got a lot of propaganda disinformation websites that have said, I'm hearing from decent, lovely constituents. Of course, I, I, I communicate with my constituents and I don't write anyone off. I keep trying to convince people, no. Um, you know, and and the, the whole pandemic has created a lot of anxiety and distrust around vaccines. So you look at this, you think, and it does affect communities of Greens as convoys of, of um truckers thinking that this is about freedom as opposed to what all of these things are straining our society right now. But the the amount of disinformation out there about climate overlaying with uh, ideas about um, freedom and overlaying ideas about globalists. It's it's really hard because when I started out in the environmental movement, my, and certainly my childhood, all of society basically had the same news source. So, you know, in Canada, everybody altogether would watch Knowlton Nash and the National. We had the same amount of information or we'd watch Lloyd Robertson on CTV, which is the same information basically that everyone accepted because it was the facts of what was going on. We're now struggling with uh, echo chambers that are deliberately purveying dangerous nonsense and undermining public confidence in things like climate science or science in general. So if for your generation, again, I mean, you're much more conversant with social media and websites and how to deal with stuff than I am. But we do need, this is where I'm back to educating on a one-to-one in real life and not relying so much on social media, actually breaking out of the echo chambers to physically take a space and, and, and claim your power as a communicator in front of a room full of people my age at your local Rotary Club. Because this is, I mentioned Rotary a lot because I'm a, I'm a member of my local Rotary Club and I love it. But one thing that just happened in the last couple of years is that Rotary International has adopted environment and sustainability as a core goal. 
So they would take on an environmental project at a local rotary. Anywhere across Canada, go find your local rotaries and say, I want to come talk to you. I've just heard that there's an environmental and sustainability rotary action group, the acronym SRAG. This is like Rotarians are, I mean, just to say the word Rotarians, I'm sure you have conjured up in your mind somebody that you don't think is going to be an environmental activist. But Rotarians are now taking on board environmental projects because it's one of the pillar core activities. I mean, Rotary has been very involved globally in trying to eliminate polio globally. It's a big goal and tracked with good resources. Well, they're now taking more interest in climate and plastic waste and shoreline cleanups. And this could be very, very cool. I didn't even know what, a, like, I really don't know much about Rotary. So I just love that you are telling me all about this because this is things that I am going to look more up. Yeah, well, it's a volunteer service club. It's like Lions or all these things they are a little murky. Until I joined Rotary, I thought you had to be a business owner to belong to it. It's, it's actually just a, a bunch of community volunteers in service. But the cool thing about it is, just to tell you a little more, and then I'll shut up about Rotary, but there are Rotarian clubs all around the world. So if you were to travel in any developing country in Africa or uh, Latin America, there are Rotary clubs there who welcome visiting Rotarians. So the opportunity for twinning developing country, industrialized country activities without any sense of the patronizing attitude of the white savior complex, right? (laughs) Rotary clubs are actually peer-to-peer wherever they are all around the world, which is why it worked. It hasn't completely worked yet. We still have cases of polio, but it's down to, you know, they've eradicated polio from a lot of countries around the world because of this particular dynamic that's peer to peer. So it's, um, it's, I don't know, I'll, I'll shut up about it, Brenda. <laughs> it's just an idea. No, it's no, it's so great. I think it touches on so many, um, just like core elements of connection as humans. And I think that leads me into like my final question before, like we have a little rapid fire thing and then I will send you on your way. But, um, for me, I'm a, like a root systems thinker. So I'm always like, okay, great. Like environmental policies are really important, but I'm also wondering, you know, what is the root of our environmental challenges? What are the clashes and intersections of worldview and culture and systems of harm, like colonialism and capitalism, like patriarchy. Don't forget the page. Patriarchy is so aligned with oppression, exploitation, humans exploit the earth, men exploit women, whites exploit, you know, the whole thing of exploitation and greed and taking everything that's living into something that's dead is at the essence of capitalism, you know, of, of, but also for that matter of central planning, economic growth and communism. I mean, so it's capitalism. It's, it's more than just capitalism. It's actually any economic system that says that the, the, the natural world has no intrinsic value because it's not commodified. So the commodification of everything drives and the greed that says, okay, once we commodify it, then we're rich. So all of that feeds into a system and a worldview, which is the opposite of a more tra- of a 
indigenous worldview, which is to see everything in 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 circles and and that you can there's enough in the world for everyone. You don't have to accumulate wealth to take it with you. <laughs> so anyway, there's there's a lot of worldview stuff that's deeply uh, driving the climate crisis and and human uh, short-sightedness in destroying our own future. How is the Green Party, you know, continuing to influence politics in Canada, despite maybe not having as many seats as they would obviously like, but also what you just said, how are they taking that and actioning that too? Because that's really difficult. It's easy to say and it's so hard to do. It is, but it, it's really cool to have any political party. And I'm also very involved with Global Greens. And so the, it's a very powerful group of people that I, powerful in the sense that there's now f- over 400 elected Greens in parliaments around the world. Um, and there are 11 countries at the moment where Greens are in cabinet, which makes a difference, right? So um, it's why when Putin invaded Ukraine, Germany said, well, we're canceling the pipeline with Russia, but we're not reducing our climate goals. We're speeding them up. So Germany went from saying we're going to have a completely decarbonized electricity grid by 2040. Putin invaded Ukraine. And so the German decarbonized grid goal is now for 2035. The EU as a whole keeps pushing on climate action. Well, part of the reason for that is when you look at the governments of the the minister for climate in Germany is the co-leader of the German Green Party. The minister, so you, Sweden, the deputy prime minister is green. Of the t- eleven governments around the world with Greens in cabinet, ten of them stretch from uh, Scandinavia down through the British Isles uh, down to um, th- to Germany into Southern Europe. So, and only one outlier, our, the wonderful government of Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand, has two Greens in cabinet. So. What do Greens do that makes a difference in Canada, whether we're one voice or, or 30 or 40 or 50? or We change the conversation because we can be the ones that say, we have to stop thinking that economic growth is a goal. Economic health is a good goal. Sustainability is a good goal. Equity, fairness, eliminating poverty, a guaranteed livable income, all the things that need to be taught. We increasingly see that when we take a position over time, a lot of people start talking about it, and then people forget it was our idea in the first place. Like equal marriage was the first—we were the first party for equal marriage, the first party for for um, legalizing cannabis, the first party for talking about guaranteed livable income, pharmacare, all that. We then we tend to influence a conversation. Uh, we certainly need to rebuild at the federal level because we had. I mean, I won't go into it. It was disastrous um, leadership. Uh, but my goodness, we're so blessed in British Columbia to have Sonia first, no, and Adam Olson, because they're really the, I mean, Sonia should be premier. She's so, yeah. So I should, I should stop just to say, please don't, those of you who are young, well, I mean, I guess maybe almost anyone listening to this podcast is young. Don't give up on thinking that it matters to vote green. I'm not saying you have to, because that sounds as slavishly um i don't want to use the word tribal because it's it's wrong in an indigenous context but this sort of team spirit thing that you don't have to think about the candidate in front of you you just always vote for that color i'm not like that 
but I do think it really matters for people to vote green because right now we're the only party telling the truth on climate. We were the only party telling the truth on climate in 2019 and in 2021, but the media treated the climate issue almost like it was like a pride parade. If you're marching in it, then you're good. And so in the case, and it was literally like a pride parade when, when we had a million people on the streets of Montreal in 2019 and Greta Thunberg was marching with us, right? We had, tru- I was there. Okay, me too. So Trudeau's marching, Jagmeet Singh is marching, I'm marching, the walk leader's marching, and Andrew Shear's not. So the media treatment of that was almost as if all these parties care about climate and he doesn't. But that's not, that shouldn't inform how you vote. Which party actually has a climate target and plan that's aligned with IPCC science? Well, only us. But even environmental groups are saying, oh, well, because, of course, first past the post, and they worry about, again, back to when I was running in Sanchez Islands in 2011, and, and it was so many of my friends thought it was a terrible thing because I'd only split the vote. If, if people actually study the platforms, might vote green more. A few rapid fire questions. It's like, I will say something and you answer it in one sentence. So it okay. takes no time and then we'll send you on your way. Thank you so much. Um, okay. So being a leader means working and being of service. What is something that people often get wrong about you? Oh my God. God. See, I'm a Christian. So people assume that you're, if you're a Christian, it's a sort of a form of mental illness, which means you're going to be against a woman's right to choose. You're going to be against gay marriage. I mean, the, the fact of religious existence for me is about, I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a left-wing Christian. There's an assumption that all Christians are right-wing. So that's the biggest thing drives me crazy. And that I worked in the Mulroney government. I was never a conservative, but the NDP have used threads of this deliberately to, un- you know, I, I mean, I, gosh, I even got the flyer in my own mailbox from Jagmeet Singh claiming that I didn't support a woman's right to choose. I, so, yeah, so it, things that, that you can plausibly say about someone that are then manipulated for politics. What is the last show or book that you binged and loved? Oh boy, I um, really loved the book Greenwood, um, which which is a book by a constituent of mine. Um, I, I'm just double checking that I get the, his name completely right, but it's an absolutely genius book, um, kind of set through different times and and. Um, uh, well, it starts in the future, then works backward through time. It's it's just an extremely, yes, I have his name right, Michael Christie. He divides his time between Victoria and Galliano. Anyway, this book Greenwood is just it, it it it's it's about climate and biodiversity, and you you just wouldn't believe how it's a genius book. Okay, we are definitely going to link that. Um, okay, almost there. What was a moment in your life that was pivotal in shaping who you are today? who I am as opposed to what I do. Hmm. I guess, you know what? I think it, I think it was, um, I think it was falling in love with my husband and actually getting married because who I am today is very much changed. But I mean, my self identity from my, from when my daughter was two and I broke up with her dad till my daughter was 28. 
<laughs> I was very much identified in my head as single mother. I can do anything. I'm on my own. It's okay. So um, falling in love at 64 and getting married was quite the change. Um, coworkers of mine saw you at COP with your new husband and they were telling me that you were goals. So I just want to let you know that people were in awe. Um, <laughs> yeah, he was, he had to come with me because I hadn't had my knee replacement yet. And I was on a walker and I couldn't get around. Thank Anyway, he's, he's terrific. John Kidder. Yeah. He wouldn't even let me take his name when we got married. Cause you know, honey, you're the brand, you know, no, we're not changing your name. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I love it He's so much. Ador- He's adorable. <laughs> okay. Last question is what keeps you fired up to continue your work? The moral pressure that my entire generation, and now I'm going to F-bomb it. We fucked it up badly. And I am not going to leave that for you guys. That is what is absolutely, I would love to go off and retire and, you know, no, but we, I am absolutely not going to die until the climate crisis is fixed. It is not on you guys. Not going anywhere. Um, Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, keep up the good work. Thank you. Please, to everyone listening, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for all of the activism, for every second you take out of every day and and uh, just keep telling the truth and keep call. Just, just do your very best to channel Greta Thunberg and call us all out. This episode of the Scare Youth Podcast was produced by Aviva Lassard. Our editor is Justine Van Dyke, graphic design by Zaria Levy, social media support by Abby Gagnon. The rest of our team includes me, Brinica Galvizantine, Emily Markham, Jackie Layton, Jessica Cloutier, Michaela Yanni, and Sean Trainer. We're the youth chapter of the Sierra Club of Canada, a national and grassroots nonprofit dedicated to protecting our environment, our communities, and our common futures. We're a community-powered show and need your direct support to continue empowering young people to learn more about topics often sidelined by the mainstream media. So if you value our conversations and the guests we learn from, you can support us on Patreon. You can follow the link in our show notes to contribute and you might even find a few extras in there. Other ways to support us include subscribing to our feed, leaving a review, and following us on Instagram. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. See you next time.